the kids make their way on down to Children's Church, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be headed, and we're going to pick up when we get there in the 26th verse, but let me just remind you uh, how we got to this point, that the theme of the book of Hebrews, as we've discussed now for uh, several months, is Jesus is better. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews has gone to great lengths to show that uh, Jesus is better from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, starting off with the prophets. He then quickly moved uh, on to angels and then eventually to uh, priests and Abraham. And he's sharing with us over and over again all of these uh, traditional uh, items and these traditional people of old through the Old Testament that Jesus is better than, that he is superior, that in fact, uh, even the very tabernacle itself, which seemed uh, odd when we were looking at it, that Jesus is better than a building or a structure. But you guys will remember the purpose of the tabernacle was for God to dwell among his people. And so when we arrived and we looked at John chapter 1, verse 14, we saw that the word became flesh and he dwelt among his people. That word dwelt in the Greek is the word tabernacled. He literally came to tabernacle, to partake, to, to be in the midst of his people. Uh, that's where Jesus desired to be. It's where God himself desired to be as well. And so as we see Jesus, a, a better tabernacle, what took place at the tabernacle we know is sacrifice happened. In order to reconnect with a holy God, they needed, excuse me, <clears throat> they needed a sacrifice, an atonement to be able to cover, to be in the presence of God. And so atonement would take place, and yet what we found in chapter 10 was Jesus is a better sacrifice. He was superior to the sacrificial system. That previously, what they had to work off of were only these temporary sacrifices. A kofar, they were called in the Hebrew. It just meant a covering. But coverings in our own life is that eventually a covering wears out. And so year after year, they would have to come back and make another sacrifice. And so all this, what it really does is the book of Hebrews, in large part, it opens up the words that were spoken way back in the Old Testament in Leviticus, this whole Levitical system. And I've shared with you before that the uh, Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so we see revelation of a book that is one of the most difficult for any of us to get through. In fact, almost every Bible reading plan, people do really good starting out. We're excited about Genesis, tremendous story, and then we get to Exodus, and they're exiting, and there's plagues and action, and we're like, yeah, and then we get to Leviticus, and it's like, oh, what happened? Like, all oh, the blood and the sacrifice and the feast, what does any of it mean? But what the book of Hebrews does is it exposes what God was really all about. Now, when you arrive in Leviticus and you want to quit, I want to encourage you don't, because here's the theme of the book of Leviticus. It is... Be holy, for I am holy. God's intention with placing the book in the middle of the Pentateuch, like he did, was to encourage the people to be holy, to be set, set apart, not set apart. Don't do that. Boy, that was a big-time faux pas. We should probably reset the entire thing at this point. Might be the highlight of the whole, actually. <laughs> what God intended to do was to set apart his people to sanctify them. And, and the idea for the Jewish people, when you think about it, he positioned them in a nation in the middle of uh, Gentile nations surrounding them. They were essentially surrounded by people uh, that wanted to kill them. But as God placed them there, he desired to set them apart so that they would be a light to the Gentiles. 
they would be uh, so different. They would live so differently that, they, that people, the nations and these Gentiles would look and go, what is it about your God? How is it that you are able to live in this way? You even get a day off every week. I mean, what an amazing thing. We want to know more about your God. We want to know, can we be a part of what you have going on? The idea wasn't to be exclusive, but actually to be inclusive. They desired to include the Gentile nations all around. In fact, a Gentile could come into the Jewish faith to believe in the God of heaven through what is called a, a mikvah. And what it means is uh, you would be immersed in water and then brought up out of the water and you would be a part of the brethren. Does that sound familiar to you at all? So you see all these symbols and these shadows of what was taking place in Judaism, in throughout the Pentateuch and in the book of Leviticus, but the whole of it was to actually include people. Now, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, what they were, had done to the law is they would twisted it so much that they'd actually used it to exclude. They'd taken what God into, intended to include people, and they'd used it to exclude all the nations around them. This is why we're better than you. But God's intent was to actually set them apart, to sanctify them. And when we arrive in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, this is what the Lord said. By that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What he intends for us is to be a holy people, sanctified set apart. How? Not by an atonement, uh, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the very precious blood of Christ. We are to be set apart, sanctified, so that as people look into our life, they go, man, what is it about you that is so different? How can I know more about this God that you serve? In fact, what, what Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 is this, that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. That his reason for setting you apart and sanctifying you, yes, it's because he loved you and wanted to have a relationship with you, but outside of that, it's because he sold. That they should be able to look into your life and go, man, you're a set-apart people. In fact, I like the old King James. It said um, that you're a peculiar people. <laughs> you, you guys are peculiar. What is... What is going on? But, but the idea is to look into your life and go, how is it you're able to handle all that life is throwing at you so differently than me? And be attracted to the God of the universe. And so this is what is happening and taking place as we arrive here in the book of Hebrews. This is what he's trying to draw out of them. And yet, as he is trying to draw this out of them, what they're considering is turning away. What they're considering is walking away from the faith walking away from the assembly, just saying, I can't take it anymore. Uh, I want to be done. I'm checking out. And so that's where we arrive in verse 26, where he writes, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three 
witnesses. So in the law of Moses, if you committed a crime and there were two or three witnesses, uh, you would suffer the result breaking of the law, which was oftentimes death. But verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose uh, he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? So we start off in a rather heavy passage. We start here in verse 26 with the fourth warning of five in the book of Hebrews. And this is just as controversial and very much uh, like the warning we saw back in chapter 6 when we studied through it. And it raises this question, can salvation be lost? So the question comes up, and there's Bible scholars all over that are much smarter than me with degrees on the wall. And what many of them will say is, well, he can write about this, about salvation being lost, because these people were never really saved in the first place. That's one supposition, that these were false believers. They thought they believed, but they didn't really believe, and so therefore, uh, their salvation can be lost because they were never really secured. Now, the problem I have with that is when you back up to verse 19, he writes, therefore, brethren. So the writer that's writing to them thought they were his brothers. It doesn't sound like they didn't believe at all. In, in fact, it appears that they very much believed enough to be a part of the assembly, the body of Christ. So we arrive in this place, and what you find is, similarly to that argument we made back in chapter 6, is salvation cannot be lost, but you can walk away. That God is enough of a gentleman to allow us to have what it is that we desire. And if we desire to walk away, uh, he will allow us to. He's not going to force anyone to go to heaven. He's not going to take a person by the ear and say, young man, you prayed a prayer in children's church back in the day. You're going to heaven whether you like it or not. Like that, that doesn't make sense, right? And so God has allowed them to make this decision. But please note with me that the issue here at hand for these Hebrews wasn't that they were struggling with sin. It wasn't that they were struggling with the sin cycle in their life. The issue was they just walked away. They were just walking away. Now, for many of us, we will ask the question, like, what did they do that was so bad to deserve a fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation that devours your adversaries? That sounds really bad. Like, what did they do to deserve all that? Well, here in verse 29, we see three things that were listed. First, notice that they trampled the body of Jesus. Literally trampled the body of Christ, the body that he broke on our behalf, that he gave himself. They had just trampled it underfoot when they walked away. And what I think is uh, even uh, tied to all this, remember, Christ is the head of the body, but the assembly was also known as the body of Christ. Earlier in this same section that we're looking at, he had just addressed not forsaking the assembly. And so not only had they trampled on the body of Jesus, but they'd actually trampled on the people that were their brothers all around them. They had walked away, trampling them underfoot. The second thing to note, they had counted the blood as a common thing. They had counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. They had looked at this blood that Jesus had poured out, this atoning sin, this, or this atoning sacrifice that took their sin away for all of eternity, and they said, that's just a common thing. 
It's not a big deal anymore. And so the, the danger here is treating the blood like a common thing. And, and what I find that's happening more, and more often in church today in uh, the Western part of the world is that the blood isn't even talked about. That we want to wash services so much that we don't even want to talk about the blood that had to be shed because I'm such a sinner. We want to whitewash things and make us all feel good. We will not talk about. We'll just flat out ignore the blood. It costs Jesus immensely for you and I to have an opportunity at eternal life. And so it's not to be counted as a common thing. It's not to be handled or dealt with uh, trivially at all. It's to be respected and honored. And then lastly, the third point he notes is that they had insulted the spirit of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, such a spirit of grace, and yet they had mocked it. They'd made a mockery of the grace of God. Now here's the thing for people that have made a mockery of the grace of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, this is what the Apostle Paul would write. But do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It is a fearful thing to mock the true and living God, that whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And I share that not to say that we should shake our fist at people that mock God. I would encourage you not to do that, but instead uh, shed a tear for them. Because what my Bible says is that they are not going to escape that kind of judgment. It's going to be really awful. And so to, to pray for them. Oftentimes, especially even in church, we have this desire to want to go defend God. He doesn't appear to need defended, not even a little bit. Well, we should instead pray for those who are in that spot because judgment is going to happen. Be heartbroken rather than shaking a fist at them because what God will ultimately do is he will allow them to have exactly what they'd asked for. Now, verse 20, or excuse me, verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so here's the, the reminder of the writer. Look, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. What Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 20, or chapter 10, verse 28 is this, uh, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both uh, soul and body in hell. That's a wonderful way to wake up this morning. But here's the reminder. Um, we are not to be afraid of what other people think. We're not to be afraid of how we're perceived. We're not to be afraid of all the things that are just temporary, but instead the writer is writing here and it's being backed up by scripture we are to be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body and the soul for all of eternity now the fear of those things that is difficult often for us to get our mind wrapped around it's it is fearful yes to fall into the hands of the living god but it is also a word that denotes reverence and awe and the best analogy and it's it's an analogy so it has its holes is that of the ocean right? Uh, if you stand on the shores of the ocean and you look out on it, uh, it is awe-inspiring. It's beautiful. It's mesmerizing. You can't see the end of it, and you're like, wow, that is, is so amazing. 
And yet, if I take you in a lifeboat and I put you in the middle of the ocean uh, by yourself, it's a much different kind of a feeling, right? Now, it's the same ocean. It's still beautiful. You can't see all around you, but it is, uh, there is definitely a fear that comes out. After a while of being out there, if you're anything like me, I'm going to start to talk to myself a lot, probably make best friends with a volleyball. Like there, There's going to be some real issues when I'm out on a life raft in the middle of an ocean. I'm, I'm afraid of this spot. And so, too, it, it's this way with the Lord, like to, to just observe all that he has done, to, to stand back and go, God, you're so awe-inspiring. And yet I do not want to be on his bad side, not one little bit. And so we have this fear of the Lord being brought up. But all that to go back to this section, which is fairly depressing in this warning. But please notice this with me. Uh, He is not giving this warning to people because they're struggling with sin. He is not writing this to people because of their struggles in a sinful spot. He is writing this to them because they're denying his provision to deal with sin. God is never surprised at my issues. I'm often shocked. I'm surprised. I'm like, I thought I was better than that. But he is at no point in time surprised, not even a little bit. But what he will not stand for, the warning here is that if you won't accept his provision for your sin, then there is no other provision for your sin. Then we're stuck in this sinful state. There's no a way to rectify it. There's no communion with him if we won't accept his sacrifice. Now, all this is written to this group that is, again, considering just walking away. But let me share this with you. If you're struggling with sin, uh, well, for one, you're not alone. We're, we're all dealing with something. We're all battling something. Oftentimes, it's a cycle. I think I've got something whipped. The next thing you know, it comes back around. Hopefully, the cycle gets bigger and bigger as ideal. And yet, for those that are struggling with sin, here's what I want you to hear. You're free. You're free. Positionally, you're seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, practically, there are things that God's going to work out in our life. Practically, we're going to have to deal. But from a positional standpoint, we are free. So the question is, how can I deal with my sin? Well, here's what I would recommend. Um, Go to the Father and put your hands up and say, Lord, I can't do it anymore. I can't take control. I can't uh, sort this all out. I can no longer be in charge of this uh, area of my life. Please deal with it for me. And what I have found personally is that my greatest victories, I'll call them my greatest victories, are really his greatest victories that were when I fully surrendered. My, my biggest surrenders, the times where I found myself on my face or on my knees just saying, Lord, you're going to have to take this from me. It's too big. I saw the biggest victories in my life. And so it's a freedom that exists of accepting his provision for our struggles. Now, continuing in verse 32, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, coming to salvation, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations. Partly, you became companions of those who were so treated. 
Verse 34, for you had compassion on me in my chains. The writer obviously was in prison and fully and, and joy fully ex, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. These people had been mistreated. They had been abused. They had been persecuted. They had been talked down to. And now they're in this spot where they're considering walking away. I think it's important to remember that as we study through this letter, that they weren't just walking away when the first bad thing happened. I mean, this writer makes it clear. Look, they've been stolen from. They had been used and abused. They've been lied to. All this stuff had happened to them in their life. And yet what he reminds them of in verse 34 is that you've got a greater reward. <laughs> you've got an enduring possession for yourself in heaven. And so there's a better promise. That's, that's the reality. Now, I shared this with you before, but it, but it begs to repeat um, that for those of you that believe in Jesus as a Christ and have confessed him with your and you believe in your heart, here's the reality. Um, this life, whatever you, whatever thing this world can come at you in all directions with, is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. It may be difficult. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be things that God's working out in our lives. But this is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. Now, conversely, for those that do not believe, and this is the part that is such a stark contrast that it's important for us to, to really allow it to sink in. For those that do not believe, this world, what it has to offer is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. As close to heaven. I mean, think about that. Everything this world has to offer, even for the, the richest and the wealthiest, there's still going to be a day where it's all going to wrap up. It's all going to end. And so for the people that do not believe, I look at them and their lives and I go, you know, I can't blame them for going for it. If they don't know Jesus, you might as well. If I didn't know Christ, I might as well go for it big time. I'm talking jacked up four-wheel drive truck, Motley crew, girls, girls, girls. I mean, I might as well go for it if I'm not going to believe in Jesus. But here's the thing. It's going to come at a price. This is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. And so that's the stark reality of this passage. Now, verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Yet for a little while, he was coming, but will not tarry. And so what we see is this reminder to focus on eternity. This reminder to endure, to focus on the heavenly scene, that whatever this life can throw at us, there is something much, much greater at play behind the scenes. What Paul would write to the Corinthians who were struggling with worldly possessions and what the world wanted to flash at them in chapter one of first, or excuse me, chapter two of First Corinthians, uh, verse nine, Paul writes this. But it is written, "I has not seen nor ear heard." nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Eye has not seen, ear hasn't heard all the things that God has in store for you after this 
temporary situation that you're in. Later on, as Paul would write to this same church at Corinth in his second letter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse uh, 2, Paul writes, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one who is caught up in the third heaven. For the Apostle Paul, you might remember when we studied through Acts, he was in Iconium, and they so didn't appreciate his preaching, they took him to the edge of town, and they actually stoned him to death. So no matter how bad I think a service went, I have yet to be drugged to the edge of town and stoned to death. So I feel pretty good about me, no matter how poorly you guys think this went. Um, But this is the reality for Paul. He has been stoned, likely to death. They thought he was dead. They walked away, and as his disciples gathered around him, Paul, like the Energizer Bunny, popped back up again, and and his words were, hey, I'm not dead. Let's go back in and keep preaching. I mean, that's that's some kind of endurance. And yet, uh, what Paul, I believe, is writing about is his own experience. In that time frame where 14 years ago, he doesn't know if he was dead or if he wasn't dead. He's not sure in the body, not in the body, but yet here's the spot he was in. He says, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Verse 4, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul, in the middle of being mistreated and put on trial and thrown in jail, what he experienced, he said, look, in spite of everything that I've been through, I experienced in heaven, in paradise, it's not even lawful for me to write about. And so we get so bogged down with the temporary. What the writer to Hebrews is saying, you need to focus instead on the eternal. And how could Paul operate in this way as he's writing to the Corinthians? Well, it's one simple word. It's that of faith. Paul had a tremendous amount of faith. Now verse, uh, excuse me, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not of those who draw to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And so a quote now from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which is, the just shall live by faith. This is how Paul lived his life. He lived by faith, knowing that God was going to take care of him in spite of his circumstances. And those who do not live a life that is justified by faith, since there's no other way to justify themselves, here's what he says, it's perdition. The word perdition in the Greek means waste. It is such a waste. But here's the thing about faith. Faith is only as good as what or who you put your faith in. That's all the better faith truly is. And so the question is, what do we put our faith in? What what ways, what things do we put our faith in? Now, I would challenge you that you actually put your faith, if you're anything like me, in all sorts of things. We don't often consider them. We don't even understand them many times. But, for example, when I got up this morning, I had faith that when I turned on the shower, it was going to put out hot water. I don't understand how my water heater works exactly, but I know when I turn the handle, I have enough faith that it's going to put hot water out. Now, I have had experiences where that did not occur. 
uh, the water heater left me, uh, it let me down a little bit. That was a whole different experience, a different kind of come to Jesus moment when you step into that situation. But I have faith this morning that the shower was going to put out hot water. I've also had faith in other things like uh, that little box we carry around, uh, the, the idol phone or the Satan song that we, that we worship far too often. I have faith when I put directions into that that it's going to give me a good direction. It's going to take me to where I want to go. Now, a few months ago, I had the opportunity after a prayer meeting to go up to a meeting in Chicago. And as I traveled late into the evening, I, I put my directions into the idle phone, thinking to the hotel around midnight as I finally arrived in town. Now, the idle phone did a fantastic job as it navigated me into the middle of Chicago until roads started to get stacked on top of roads. You see, then the idle phone has trouble. So at this point, I don't know if I'm on upper whacker, lower whacker. I'm not sure what whacker I'm on, but somewhere there's a whacker I'm supposed to be on, and now I can't find my hotel because I put my faith in the idle phone. It let me down. You see, my faith was only as good as the object that I had put it into. Now, the other thing to note is that our actions always imply a belief. What I mean by that is I can say that I have faith, but my actions will actually prove out what and where my faith is truly at. And by way of example, I could say that I want to go on a mission trip to Africa. I, I truly say that. I proclaim that with my words. And yet, at the same time, I don't have faith in the airlines to get me there, so I'm not going to fly. Well, the reality is you're probably not going on a mission trip to Africa. There's, there's no other way unless you're going to spend several months on a boat to get there. That my real faith actually shows itself by my actions. My actions implied a belief. I said I wanted to go. have enough faith in the mode of transportation to get me there. Therefore, did I really want to go? And so here's the reality. We oftentimes miss out because we don't exhibit faith. Where we put our faith is not uh, in something that is actually trustworthy. Now, if you're anything like me, the place that I most often put my faith outside of the Lord is me. I am the one that most often I put my faith in. And the funny part is, I am the least trustworthy person I know. Because almost every time I put my faith in me, I let me down. And yet over and over again, I put my faith back in me to resolve a situation. But when I look at the track record of the Lord, he has never one time let me down. Oftentimes, the solution wasn't the way I thought it was going to be. It ended up looking far different, and yet I could look back and go, wait a minute. I, I, I see how he's taking care of this in my life. And so the question is, um, where do I actually place my belief, and then do my actions back that up? Do my actions back up what I claim to believe? And can others see that in my life? What does it look like displayed in our lives? As we interact with people, would they look at me and say, that is one who is clearly ruled by faith. He believes God is going to see him through this. Or is he busy relying upon himself? So that's the, the challenge of this. Now, for some of you, you're wondering, all right, how do you define faith then? 
If this is what faith is, how do you define it? So glad you asked. Chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen could also be translated the evidence of things not seen yet. Not seen yet. In other words, faith is knowing something is going to be taken care of, knowing that God is behind us and he's going to take care of this situation. It just hasn't manifested itself yet. I, I can't see it completely played out. I don't have the whole playbook. If I did, it wouldn't be faith. It'd be called fact. So I have to have trust. I have to have faith that he's going to take care of a situation in my life. And yet, in the midst of this faith and taking steps of faith, what Isaiah says in chapter 1, verse 18 is, come, let us reason together. We have a reasonable faith. It's not a faith without reason altogether. In fact, what Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 concerning belief and faith, he says here in chapter 1, verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The creation itself testifies of the existence of God. And you know this to be true when you walk out and you see a sunset or a sunrise across these beautiful horizons we have. Or if you go to that ocean scene that we just talked about or go out to the mountains, you can look out and observe the very beauty of God and go, there has to be a designer. There has to be a creator behind all of this. It's too magnificent. It's too intricate. No one would show this building and not expect it to be built by someone. It didn't just pop up out of nowhere. So creation itself demands, it testifies of a creator. And yet, it still takes faith. There is an element in there where I have to. Belief will dictate how I act. And so the way we can choose to believe is, look, I'm going to believe in God. And while this situation isn't resolved, He's just not finished yet. He is still working in this area. Now, verse 2 of chapter 11, he says, And for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith the elders obtained a good testimony. Now, what elders is he talking about? There were perhaps elders uh, here at the church, or uh, he was talking about people they might have met, like the apostles that Jesus called into ministry, that they had had a good testimony. They were able to share what God had worked out in their life. People like uh, Simon Peter, for example, who was a larger-than-life character, but in the middle of this time period where he should have had faith, uh, on the night that Jesus was tried, all he could do was deny. I don't know the man. His faith completely wavered. He denied knowing Jesus whatsoever. And he was so heartbroken at this scene where he knew that he had denied the Lord that he said, you know what, I'm going to go back to having faith in what I know, and that's fishing. I'm just going to go trust me for a little bit. And he went back brokenhearted to fish on the Sea of Galilee, only to be met by the risen Christ. Jesus calling him over to the shore, making him breakfast, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Oh, you know I love you, Lord. Well, if you love me, you feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Oh, you know I love you, Lord. If you love me, then you feed my sheep. This was the 
cry that the Lord gave, the calling the Lord gave to the Apostle Peter. And from that point forward, this interaction with the risen Lord, he never turned back. He went pedal to the metal from the shores of the Sea of Galilee on, so much so that his testimony was by the time he got to the end of his life, where he was there in Italy being questioned by the Roman authorities, and they said, you're going to deny Christ or you're going to be crucified. What Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us is Peter said, you know what? Um, I'm one, not going to deny the risen Lord ever again. And secondly, I'm not even worthy of being crucified like Jesus. Turn the cross upside down and crucify me. And the Apostle Peter, the one who had denied, who had lost faith, he was crucified upside down. He knew he had a better promise ahead of him, you see. Similarly, for an elder like Thomas, Thomas who, who struggled with this idea that Jesus had raised from the dead so much so that he said, look, if I can't see it, if I can't touch his hands and his side, I'm not going to believe, no matter what you guys tell me. And in a locked room, while they were cowering in fear, Jesus walks in the room, tapping him on the shoulder. Hey, Tom, check it out. Check out my hands. Check out my side. To which this man who had doubted so much said, Lord and my God, he was blown away. For Thomas, he was met by the risen Christ. And he so believed, his life was so changed that he would eventually end up in India preaching the gospel to Hindus there who told him if he didn't stop preaching the gospel, if he didn't go back to doubting the one that he had doubted previously, if he didn't give it up, that they were going to run him through with a spear. Thomas, who doubted, refused to doubt. He had that much faith. And they ran him through with a spear from all directions, and yet he is now at the feet of the resurrected Lord, worshiping him. Yeah, what Jesus would go on to say in John chapter 20, verse 29 to Thomas, you saw and you believed, but blessed are those who do not see, and yet they still believe. Blessed are those who for generations to come, and you can go throughout history and see person after person, man and woman, one after another, who gave their life for Christ. They didn't see the resurrected Lord in the same way that Thomas and Peter did, and yet they had a testimony of a life that had faith on display. Now, as we wrap up, verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. If you started our reading this week at all, um, I'll, I'll give you the spoiler if you didn't start it. It started off like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can get by that, if you can have enough faith to believe that, the whole rest of the Bible will just fall into place. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 3, and God said by his word, let there be light. And you know what happened? There was light. God's word will come to pass. Even things that were microscopic. What the writer here of Hebrews verse 3 says is that the world was framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. The writer of Hebrews knew that there were microscopic things happening that we don't understand that frame up everything we know about. They didn't own a microscope. 
They couldn't have known about atoms and then further on down subatomic particles. And as scientists look into this, they find smaller and smaller particles that make up life. The things that were, are visible were made up by things that were not visible. But all of this started by the word of the Lord. And so, what does that mean with our faith? For many of us, we've got pretty much faith. At least that's how we feel. I've got such small faith, you've got to get out the atomic microscope to be able to even see it. But I desire, I want my faith to grow. I don't want to stay in that spot. And so if that's you, here's some things to consider about growing in your faith. First of all, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says. So how can I grow in faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Hearing in this spot means not just to hear words, but to understand, to take it in. Amos would say, look, there's a famine in the land. As God was pronouncing a judgment over the land, he said, there's going to be a famine, but it's not going to be a famine of food and bread and water. It's going to be a famine of the hearing of the word of God. And that's the spot we're in right now as a country. There's a famine in the land. People have got Bibles all over the place. Everybody's got a Bible. Most of the time it's on the coffee table. It's that great big family Bible. You want everybody to know that you're reading the Bible, so you got one that's so big you can't carry it around. Right? We read the Bible, but there's a famine of the hearing of the Word of God, of actually understanding what it is that He's trying to communicate. And so hearing God's Word is the first place we grow in faith. Second, How do we hear from the Lord? It's reading His Word daily. Spending time in the Word daily. What you know about your physical body is if you don't give it fuel daily, it's going to start to break down. You can fast for a day, two days, a week, but at some point in time, the body will start to break down. Actually, scientifically, they've come up with about 42 days is where you get to before you start to lose muscle mass and actually fall apart completely. So the body can only last so long without having nutrition. And yet, how often do we not feed it spiritually what it needs to continue? Our spiritual body isn't fed, and then we're surprised when muscles start to atrophy, when things start to fall apart. And so we, we promote things like reading the Bible together, but the reality is it's, it's really for you. It's for me. It's for my own nutrition. It's a daily intake, and once a week just isn't going to cut it. So reading the Word of God. How do I hear from the Lord? Well, I've got to read in order to hear. The ways the Lord has spoken to me the most in my life has not been a preacher. It's not been the best pastors that I've ever heard. It's been through simply studying God's Word and letting Him speak to me. More often than not, He has given me a word from his word that meant something. I couldn't even share it with you because it would make no sense, but it's meant something to me in that moment. And so, uh, understanding that for the body to be healthy, we have to have an intake. Now, the third, and this is where it gets more challenging, it is to obey. We cry out and we want the Lord to give us a word, but then he gives us a word and we go, well, I don't know that I can do that. That sounds hard. I'm going to have to back away. It's, it's hearing from the Lord and then being obedient to what God gives us. 
And here's what John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. He says, For the love, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, that we obey his word. But, but here's the second part of this verse. And his commands are not burdensome. Understand that when he gives us a word to obey, it's not meant to be a burden. It's not meant to be drudgery, like, oh, I got to go do that again. It's not supposed to be a burden. It doesn't mean we don't have our dry seasons, for sure, but, but it's meant to not be a burden to us. And, and what we talked about a couple weeks ago was this work of salvation that Jesus did. Remember, it was one of obedience. Our salvation took place because he was obedient to the will of the, a tremendous work of salvation. And so the question is, and this is the challenge, when was the last time you had enough faith to obey what he gave you? When was the last time you really took a step of faith? For some of you, um, you've never heard from the Lord in that way. And so if that's the spot you're in, let me refer you to number one and number two. Spending time with him, he will give you a word. And it won't always be uh, some step that you can't take. It's going to oftentimes, like a muscle, have to be exercised. He's going to give you a thing, and when you respond, he's then going to give you the next thing. That's the way this relationship works. Until you've been faithful in the first thing, he's not going to give you the next thing to do. And what I have found by steps of faith in my life is that he has never asked me to do something that he didn't give me the faith and the means to do it. It might have stretched me. It might have been a challenge. But no uh, sacrifice, no work of service, no amount of money, no thing he's ever put on my heart to do have I not been able to do because he's already given me the means to do it and the faith to take the step. And so this is the challenge that we have before us. Now, finally, in the spot of reading the word of the Lord and hearing from the Lord, and you've been obedient, for any length of time, what you'll know is that this next one is key. It's endurance. To endure. What the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy, as he's at the end of his days, he says here in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He was getting ready to have his head taken off by Nero as he wrote that. And so Paul says, look, I fought the good fight. I'm here, I'm in this spot, but by fighting the fight and running the race, it was one of endurance. It wasn't always pretty. It didn't always come out the way he thought, but he continued to endure. And this is what really defines the life of a believer. It's a life of endurance and getting to the next thing and the next thing. And the reason that happens is because God loves me enough to not leave me in this spot. He loves me enough to want to continue to grow me from faith to faith is what Paul would say. As he grows me from faith to faith, it means I'm going to have the next test, the challenge, the next thing that he is going to actually walk with me through as we continue this journey of endurance. 
But as I share that, I think oftentimes we get it in our head that God's just got another test, another thing for me to do, that he's going to pop out from around the corner and go, ha-ha, I knew you couldn't do it. That's not at all how God operates. He loves me enough as a father to know that I need to be matured. I need to be grown past this spot. And he also will endure with me enough to love me even through the times where I throw a temper tantrum. Lord, really? This challenge, really? Yeah, really. I love you that much that I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. Last story of the morning. In the book of Acts, we are introduced to a young man named John Mark. Now, what you need to know about uh, this story is before this, that uh, Paul and Barnabas had gone out on the first evangelical missionary journey. And they were big time. They were like the Beatles of the uh, New Testament. I mean, they were going to Cyprus. They were exercising demons. People were coming to the Lord. It was awesome. And so as they were traveling around, as they were getting ready to make arrive in Cyprus, their first stop, and it's, it is on. These guys are going after it. But John Mark was there with them, and it was too much. He didn't have the faith. He's like, guys, I, I got to walk away. I, this is too much for me. And he turned around, and he went home. He was the nephew of Barnabas. He didn't have what it took to be able to stick it out. And so when it came time, the next missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are set to go out again, these great men of faith. Barnabas says, hey, I want to take my, my nephew, John Mark, again. And Paul said, absolutely not. He's a quitter. He's already quit on us once. We're not taking John Mark. He's a weenie. Let him go back home and stay at home. I'm not taking him along. And so the the disagreement became so sharp, we're told in Acts chapter 15, that they actually decided to split up and go their own way. Making John Mark the Yoko Ono of the New Testament. Like, literally, Yoko, you broke up the band. The, John Mark goes with Barnabas one direction. Paul and Silas, they go the other direction. And so we have this contentious moment where this young man who did not have enough faith is put on the spotlight. Now, if you're still in 2 Timothy, let me flip to verse 11 for just a second, where Paul writes, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. At the end of Paul's life, this young man who was too much of a weenie, he didn't have enough faith, he wanted nothing to do with him, at the end of his life, John Mark had grown so much that what Paul says, Paul says, I want you to get Mark. I want you to bring him to me because he is useful. And in the Greek, some of your Bibles will translate that profitable. He is valuable to me. He is important to the ministry. I don't know about you, but I'm so encouraged by that story. Because without John Mark, we don't have the gospel of Mark. You realize that? We don't ha also have these stories where a person lacks faith, and yet God so loves him that he lets him take the test again and again and again until finally he passes the test. 
And he grows him in faith to the point to where even the great Apostle Paul says, I want that guy. He is valuable to me. And so, Father, we thank you. Praise you for steps of faith. Lord Jesus, sometimes these steps feel like baby steps. Feel like that movie, What About Bob? I'm just taking baby steps. Baby step this way. Baby step that way. Lord, it feels like that. Just taking these baby steps. And then I'm two steps forward and I'm three steps back in this relationship. I want to just thank you publicly and with my family here for being so patient with me that you allow people like me to grow from faith to faith not giving up not turning back continually continually giving us these tests and challenges so that, that we can grow to the next faith Lord for those that are in this room that have gone through these steps and they have been obedient and yet it gets hard help us to remember endurance is the word for the Christian life fighting the good fight running the race to the very end and Lord for those that are that are scared because you might ask a step that we're not ready to take would you give us enough faith to just be able to open your word see what it is you'd have to say maybe it's as simple as getting outside of our comfort zone and talking to the lady in line at Walmart or the guy that's stocking shelves or that coworker that makes me nervous. Lord, give us the faith. Or maybe it's just when someone says, would you pray? But I've got enough faith to just pray right there in that spot. Father, I thank you for being so patient with us that you allow us to grow in that way. I am excited for what you're going to do in this body as you grow us individually and corporately from faith to faith. Lord, please help us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.